Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A pop guard. Basically, I, uh, they, they stopped working. Like, the other one just, like, stopped working. And I had to get a new one last minute. And I just ordered the one, the first one that was, like, recommended. And then, uh, yeah, they came really fluffy. Like, <laughs> it's fine. Like, it's really bad. And also these, because I had to get new cables as well, because the other one stopped working. These are, like, four meters long. And you don't... <laughs> yeah, that is quite a long cable. But I guess if, I, if things don't go, well, I can stand over there and not look at you. <laughs> and we could still talk, right? Yeah, that's fine. I mean... If you, I would untangle it. I'll now. see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. If I stop moving away during an interview, don't worry, because I can still talk to you with the large cable. I've, I've warned you ahead of time that you might not want to answer stuff. So. <laughs> I'll just have a maybe wander around, go to the loo during the thing, but it's all good because I've got the cable. If you if if you hear some sort of background peeing noise <laughs> like on the thing, that's that will be. It's definitely not me. Yeah. Um. I'm. I, I'm. Sorry. I'm just. I'm now worried that like y- you've turned off the music so that we can hear your pee slightly better <laughs> <laughs> hello and welcome to the ask the industry podcast episode 86 i'm comedian simon kane and for those of you new to the show this is the podcast where i interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up comedy radio and today writing Sam Bain is most well known for co-writing the sitcom Peep Show. We talked about how the industry has changed since he got started, what he would do differently if he started again now with all the knowledge he has, how social media has impacted his job, and why he thinks commissioners should pay more for shows that are seen by more viewers. I love this one. It's honestly one of my favourite episodes I've done this year. If you're a budding writer and you've ever wanted an optimistic reality check about what it is like being a full-time sitcom writer, this is the podcast for you. As mentioned in the podcast, Podcast. His play is on for a month at the start of November. It's called The Retreat and it's at the Park Theatre in London. And also his new show is called Ill Behaviour and it's on the BBC. All details and ticket links can be found within the show notes. Before I hit play, I am currently at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So please do take the time and come and see my new show if you can. It's called Laughter is the Best Placebo. It's at 5pm at Sweets Venue at Grass Market 2 every day except Wednesdays when I get rudely awoken by the dustman. If you're new here, please do hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do leave the show an honest review in iTunes. But now, without any more delays, this is Sam Bain. I got my first writing job in TV. I think it was, yeah, me and Jesse got an agent. This is about 1990, I'm going to say seven, 20 years ago. And then 
the first thing that happened to us was we had a script optioned by LWT, which was a huge deal, and that's kind of where it kicked off. So I call that a job. The show never got made, but I'll still call it a job. Um, yeah, that was it. Really, that was where it all started for us. What for someone who doesn't know, what does a script option mean? It means you've written a script already, and they like it enough to buy the rights for not a huge amount of money. But what they also did, which was great, is they commissioned another script. So we actually had a good script fee for writing another episode of that show. So it was kind of um, the first step on the way, really. Right. And do you think you would have been given that op- offer without an agent? Or do you think that... No way. No, agents are the gatekeepers. They're the ones who, um, you know, who provide a service to the industry of, like, being the first filter level. And so, yeah, it's a cliche, but as if you want to write, you need to get an agent. You just do, because otherwise no one's going to take you seriously. Unless you're the BBC, where, where they think they do read a lot of unsolicited scripts, I don't really know, but I think they do with the writer's room and stuff. And they obviously have a public service commitment. No, no one else does. So if it's an independent commercial company or broadcaster, they've got no obligation to actually read anything. So they're not going to unless it's recommended by an agent. Do you think that's? I mean, do you think that's been changed by social media with people building their own audiences, or do you think that's? That's a good question. I do get a lot of videos sent to me on Twitter, <laughs> like at least one a week. Right. I've never watched any of them. <laughs> Just to, that is a fact. But I do get them sent. I imagine producers do all the time. Whether they watch them or not is anyone's guess. Is it easier to watch a video than read a script? Sort of. It might impact. It's not really an area I'm an expert in because I, I haven't, you know, had to deal with that stuff uh, in my career. But yeah, I can see that. Um, Obviously, if you have a YouTube channel with a million hits and you haven't got an agent, you've got a level of um, credibility which you, you would have, which you wouldn't be able to have in previous years. So, yeah, I can see that might be a, a, a different game, really. Mm. And how how did you get your agent then? What was your... Um, me and Jesse wrote a couple of uh, scripts on spec and then we had one meeting with an agent. I think it was... I had a friend who worked the BBC is a script reader and she was doing quite well and she knew a few agents so she suggested a couple of people and we met one of them and that didn't work out and then we went met another and it did so yeah it was having a friend who could say oh you know you should approach this person that was kind of what what helped did did you approach as a as a duo yeah 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 for the first I'd say for the first 15 years of our career pretty much we were everything as a duo how how was that as a as a process? Like, is it like one of you brings an idea and then you bounce it off each other, or is it like you write separately and then bring half a script each? Um, yeah, so we spent spent a lot of time coming up with ideas together, and to the extent where we're at doing outlines together and scene by scene breakdowns together, solving all the hard problems together, basically of story and characters. And then, but yeah, when you come to writing the actual script, the dialogue then I will go away and write half a script and Jess will write the other half and then we'll swap and edit. That's how, we, how we've done it. Do you, do you find you have a similar sense of humour? Yeah. I think if you, if you don't have and you're a writing partnership, you're in big trouble. That's kind of what brings us together. We have a sort of identical sense of humour, really. But do you, do you find 
that that means I mean I can see that as being an advantage to bounce ideas off of because you may be trying to top each other but then I could also see if you didn't get on that also being quite useful because then you've sort of got something to go oh this could be funny oh isn't it funny yeah no we are different people I think I think I, <laughs> I think I can say that we are different human beings and yeah our personalities are quite different I guess what we have in common is obviously humour taste work ethic um ways of working ways of you know planning our day and our week which are quite important but yeah we have different personalities and obviously i think the show we're most famous for peep show is about two men who spend far too much time with each other and have quite different outlooks on life which i think is probably not a coincidence do you do you find you ever get writer's block and like that having a partner there helps you yeah i don't really believe in writer's block okay because i don't think if you're a professional, you have the luxury of that. It's a bit like saying plumber's block. Oh, I can't plumb today, I'm just not in the mood. You know, my, my job is writing, and so I do my job, you know. I think, though, that writing can be quite challenging and difficult. Anyone who's tried will probably agree. So, yes, in that respect, when your morale is low or your ideas are low, you're feeling a bit frazzled or burnt out or blocked in terms of you don't know what to write in this scene, it's massively helpful having a writing partner. Because all that stuff can be a lot easier with someone you can chat it over with and meet up and share the highs and the lows. Yeah, I couldn't recommend it more highly, um, especially for comedy. It's, it's a long tradition of partnerships. And it was was it like a quite organic the way you guys started writing together, or was it? Yeah, yeah, we met on a creative writing course at Manchester Uni, and so we kind of were aware of each other's writing and liked it and everything. We shared a flat for a year at Manchester, and then we started. It makes me sound like I'm about ninety years old. We started like a sort of quite an old fashioned thing of writing letters to each other, comedy letters, while we were doing various shitty jobs. I was working as a temp and stuff, and we would do these letters and make each other laugh when we were bored at work or whatever. And I think that's what made us think we might write together. Then we sort of sat down and it kind of clicked straight away. How long were you sort of having to have a day job while you were sort of starting to write in TV? Like, how long did it take you to become a full-time writer? Well, I started writing at uni, did two years of that. That was 1991. I sort of wrote... I've been writing continuously ever since then, really, 91. But it wasn't until about 97 that we got an agent in 98 that we started getting some money but we weren't earning like money you could probably live on for another year or so so I guess in terms of earning a living full-time as a writer it probably took me from when I first started writing my first ever short story I guess about seven years which is pretty quick I think but do you think that was because back then there were less <clears throat> less channels and less writers so therefore it was not easier but like there was just less competition or do you think that was luck on your part because you got an agent through knowing people how what, what would you put that down to well i think me and jesse were pretty serious from the start we were both pretty motivated and we put the hours in and produced some pretty good work pretty quickly which is relatively unusual again being in a partnership is pretty helpful for that and yeah getting an agent i don't know i don't know how to, you know i feel so old saying all this but the industry has changed so much since 1997 it's hard to hard for me to track whether it's easier or harder now, I couldn't really comment on that. It's too, too too much of a complex question, really. One thing we found, which is probably useful for people starting out, is that I think it was then and still is very, very difficult to earn any kind of living writing adult sitcoms as a starting writer. What we did is we wrote a lot of kids' shows, kids' sitcoms, which um, you know we, we did from about 1999 
to 2000 or so it really helped keep the wolf from the door earn money doing what we wanted which is writing narrative comedy and also learning our trade learning how to deal with deadlines and editors and drafts and rewrites and read-throughs and punch-ups all that stuff with your the agent that it worked out with how do you just approach them and say we've got a script we'd like to do it this way or do they come to you and say we know channel four are looking for this do you want to write a, a treatment and pass it forward what's sort of the process there well when you yeah you can't yeah you have to send an agent something to start with but then once you've got an agent and you're going going all right then they might yeah they might come to you you know one of the agent's first jobs is to like get you work basically so they would hopefully know producers or channels what they're looking for or i usually meet this producer or i'm gonna try and get you to meet this this channel that's that's what they do so yeah but that's sort of stage stage two stage one is getting one which means writing a script and sending it to them yeah yeah totally and i assume that's unsolicited that i mean for you it was kind of solicited but no it's unsolicited yeah no one is going to solicit you unless they've read something so the first thing you send will always be unsolicited and how how long do you normally or how long did you have to wait for a reply or did you just keep chasing it up going have you read it have you read it good question i don't remember i think it wasn't more than a month or so it's a difficult one to know. Probably the truth is people will get back to you quicker if they like it. If they don't, they might not ever get back to you. Yeah, totally. And when it came to something like um, Get It On Peep Show, mm. what, how long did it take from like you having the idea and you maybe writing the first draft to getting that on TV? How, how sort of slow was that as a process? David Mitchell is the man to ask about this because he has a great memory. And I think he wrote the dates in his memoir if you want to read it. It's very good, backstory. I'm guessing, I think we started writing it in about 2001, and I th I'm pretty sure it didn't go on TV until 2003. So it would be two years writing the pilot, shooting a 50-minute taster, shooting another 50-minute taster, then getting a series commission, writing the series, shooting the series, two years. And during that time, I assume, I mean, were, were you earning money from that, or were you having to do other things? No, that was our main job, yeah. Okay. So getting a series commission is yeah you can live off that. It's that's the big that's a big sort of step up. Mm. It was a big break for us. Okay. So uh, when they saw the script or when they were seeing the early scripts of Peep Show, were there any compromises you had to make to make it work for that channel? No, and that's the great thing about Channel Four and sort of British TV in general compared to the more commercial channels in America and stuff is they don't really kind of force you into a box. Well, they we didn't ever get forced into a box in fact if anything we were encouraged to make it weirder and more itself which has always been the case with that show it's, it's been great right so something so something like uh, like the dog eating episode would that wasn't something you had to like push through they were just like yeah no, go ahead no I think when you do an episode like we did in series 2 where a man gets off crack by the happy ending is you know he puts an opium suppository up his ass. And that's how he managed to get off crack. I think once you've done that, it doesn't really matter. They don't care. <laughs> they just want they just yeah. want us to be funny and they want it to be edgy maybe. You know, they they've I've never had any problems from Channel Four in that department. Is would you would you prefer to keep working with Channel Four then because like you just kind of Yeah, well, I've got my new show's BBC, which has been going great. So, you know, it's um whoever's, you know, right for the project and mm. I haven't really had any bad experiences with channels particularly. And in terms of character writing and development, how much 
backstory do you make for a character before you've written it? So do you like develop the character and then start writing the show or do you sort of start writing a plot and then add the characters to it? How does that work? That's a really good question. So I've got two answers to that. First answer is yes, in a, in a TV show, especially a sitcom, it's all about the characters. You know, the, what keeps you coming back week in, week out is the same characters you don't really change. So yeah, it's all about the characters and the plot of the week is the plot of the week. But you've got Mark and Jeremy, whoever. For a film, to me, it's the other way around. Like with a film script, I'd start with the plot and then think who would do this because you have to get the beginning, middle and end. You have to have a lot of change. You have to have a lot of things happen and maybe the characters change from beginning to end. In terms of how much backstory, when we started out, we used to write pages and pages of it, almost like you're preparing an actor preparing a role, like where this person went to school, what their likes and dislikes are. And the more experience we got, the less of that we wrote. What it came down to often was one line about, this is how they see the world. You know, Mark is worried about everything. Jeremy thinks he's the best at everything. That's kind of the main thing, because in a sitcom you have 24 minutes to get across a character, and you can't, the simpler the better in some ways. I mean, you can go deep, and you can have fun, and you can make them do interesting things, but you need to get those characters actually in the first scene. That's the challenge of writing a pilot in particular. You don't have much time to get your audience on board and go, right, this is person A, this is person B. Now we know where we are, we can get on with the story. Yeah, when I, when I spoke to Andrew Ellard, do you know Andrew Ellard? Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. Andrew, yeah. He, he said, write the second episode first and then go back to the first episode so you kind of know where the character is going to go. And that, that was kind of an interesting, because I'd never thought to do that. And so it's interesting that you guys sort of think just one line, like sort of not their epitaph, but like they're sort of, that that's who they are so yeah so everything would come around so that would be like the brainstorm so like with uh, jeremy for example he thinks he's great at everything where would that go into that plot yeah is that right exactly yeah i think andrew's point is good i think mom the most common mistake people make writing sitcoms is they do a big setup episode which we didn't do in peep show if you notice it just sort of actually the first episode of peep show was written as a second episode it got broadcast first I think because the first episodes were set in an office and Channel 4 worried it'd be too comparable to The Office, which was everyone's big hit show at the time. But, you know, the key thing is you could start with any episode because people will watch it that way. And also, it's a, you know, if you do a set of episodes, it's usually a very unusual one where you have lots of, you know, you want to prove to a producer that you can write a sitcom, you need to be able to write episode four. So, yeah, write episode four first. Yeah, I, I like cold openings. I like it when you just drop someone in halfway through like a sent, like a conversation and they have to sort of catch up with who the characters are. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's my personal way of writing because I just think if you if you have to tell them too much, that, then it's not, it's, it's, it needs to be obvious. Is that fair? I think that's exactly right. Just go in, go straight in, mm. get on with it. I think that's how it is with people in real life though. Do you know what I mean? Like if you walk over to someone, you wouldn't sort of, like you might in like a date situation go, oh, what's your job or whatever. But I think in like a social context, you might just walk over and you would just get a feel for what their life is about. And so mm. that feels more natural as well. Yeah, you know, there's a, you just want to get going, you know, people get bored easily. There's a lot of choice. They could watch a hundred other things. You need to grab them and get on with it. Mm, definitely. Do you, do you have a person or an actor in mind for a certain character when you're writing it or is that does that come later well with peep show it's unusual because we we, we 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 were writing the characters for mission and web because we knew them and the channel liked them and it was always going to be them which was great because obviously we wrote characters which we felt because we knew them as friends we felt would suit them well 
they're not them but they you know we knew they would be funny playing those characters that's pretty much the only time I've ever done that we didn't do that with Fresh Meat or Four Lions or anything else really so it's relatively unusual but sometimes it can help if you're writing and you and you, you need to figure out who this person is you go oh well you know I love um, Jennifer Aniston it could be like that or whoever it just might help you visualise the person but it's not necessarily something that's going to you know be castable as that person and when it comes to like character flaws like so that they've got kind of a personality how do you make those believable but like still hyperbole enough for a, for a funny dynamic between two characters yeah I think you need to to think about them as real people but the difference is that in a show they do they go to extremes so you might start out thinking this person someone who's like me but then you know you push them to the point where they're eating a dog or whatever and it's actually you can go on that journey because they're sort of like a a normal real person inverted commas but then through the plot they do more extreme things which makes it funny and dramatic so yeah you start you know the way me and jesse write comedy which is not to say every show is like this and there are a lot of shows that are much broader more cartoony which i love which you know i I couldn't necessarily write we we tend to write relatively realistic tonally realistic shows and i guess relatively realistic characters although it's a trick you know because the peep show i think also because the way it's filmed it feels quite realistic but actually it's it's as broad as a lot of other sitcoms it just it it doesn't you don't feel it like it is Mm. because it's shot in a kind of more down-to-earth earthy sort of way yeah definitely do you have you found you've got uh, or you and jesse or just you know however you want to answer that get have got more bargaining power as you've got like sort of more established or do you find uh, the, like some channels have become more risk averse do you find that it's actually become more tricky for you to get stuff sort of commissioned or, or even bought um we're not having a problem getting stuff commissioned currently come back to me in a year i might feel differently um and yeah you have a lot more bargaining power absolutely having a hit show i mean peep show is only a hit really critically it's never been a big audience hit although as the audiences figures for everything have gone down ours look better but they haven't really gone up but yeah having a show that people like that is seen as a success gives you a, norm, a huge boost in terms of bargaining power and you know marketability yeah do you uh, so that was my next question like in terms of uh, there's like more places for people who don't have age and stuff like social media to put content out there mm. and so obviously like you said everyone's attention is being split and so they're not necessarily watching TV as much or they might be you know sort of watching YouTube do you find that when you're pitching for a show their expectations of the number of people that are watching have gone down then or do you think they're sort of still hoping that you'll get this sort of another cult following show or what do you find tv channels are after that's a really good question um yeah i mean it's crazy i think someone on twitter can tell me the exact figure because i don't know but i think when spitting image was cancelled i had something like six million viewers or something which was seen as not enough in those days and now would be a mega hit you know Mm. So things have changed a great deal, obviously, since the proliferation of channels and, and everything else and digital and internet. Like I said, when we started out, Peep Show was, was get, hovering around a million, I think it always has done, really, viewers, which in 2003 wasn't very good. But in 2015, when the last series was trans- transmitted, was be- looking all right and perfectly reasonable because the viewing figures for comedy on terrestrial channels have dropped i think the kind of shows we write they're not sort of coronation street or Broadchurch. they're not big audience hungry audience hits 
so on the whole we're, we're, we're lucky that we've never had huge pressure for ratings I don't think we've ever had anything cancelled because of ratings if it's seen as good and it's a critical hit then I think the, the channel feel like it's probably prestigious for them makes them feel like it's a mark of quality and that gets us through which is a great position to be in because then all you have to really worry about is the quality that's really interesting so because uh, who was it? it was Graham Smith I was talking to um, he was saying that comedy never really like pays for itself on channels and they tend to keep it because it's like they can av- they can go we've got this property and mm. so did you ever like worry in the early stages where especially with that show where you were saying oh the numbers aren't even like that amazing that they would go well let's let's try and find one that will get us more eyeballs and then obviously more money from advertising or or was that never sort of a worry in your head oh no we were worried <laughs> we thought with the show we'd get cancelled for the first two seasons definitely that it wasn't racing enough I think it was series three that for some reason broke through I think probably because it'd been around a while and started to pick up award nominations and people just sort of cottoned onto it which obviously if you've been around three series, you're going to have more viewers, people who've seen it. But it wasn't until after series three and then we won a BAFTA in series four, that's when we started to feel really secure. But yeah, the first couple of seasons, we wrote them all thinking it would probably be the last. When you when you won the BAFTA, was that, was that good for you beyond the show? Like, did people start approaching you then more? Or was it just a case of um, they still sort of thought, oh, you're signed up doing this show, we, there's no point in even sort of approaching them because they're, they're Channel 4 property. What, what was that like for you? I think it was good for us, yeah, in every way, really. It made us, people sort of, sort of as a market quality. It helped us negotiate with the channel. I remember around that time, there was a scheduled clash between Peep Show and another show we were writing for BBC One, The Old Guys, and we wanted to push Peep Show by a few months. And the channel were like, no, we want you to deliver it now. And I think pre the BAFTA, we might have gone like, oh, we don't have a very strong position. We should probably just give in. But because we just won a BAFTA, we kind of felt like we had a pretty strong hand in the poker game. So we just said no and we got we got our way, which I think was is probably the best reason, the best, most useful way to use awards is kind of as a negotiating chip in, in the poker game. Yeah, totally. And how, how I don't even know how the Baptist. Do you have to like put yourself in for that, or is it just a case of because it was a show that was automatically included? I think the channel, the production company, actually puts you in, and then obviously BAFTA members vote for every show, and then a certain amount go towards a jury, and then they decide who gets nominated and who wins. Okay, that's pretty cool. Though when you are sending your scripts in to place, I mean, I mean, when your agent is sending your script off to somewhere else do they send it to a production company or they send it straight to the channel production company unless it's the bbc in-house which they can do their own shows but channel four everything's through a production company okay and do you get any say in that like well now we do (laughs) because we know everyone and and we kind of find our own work and make our own connections and actually me and jesse are setting up a production company of our own right now but yeah when we start out you're very much in the hands of your agent. You're relying on them to know who the best people are because you don't know anyone. And I suppose there's a there's an element of trust. Do, do you see it as you work for your agent or they work for you or like how how does that dynamic work? That's a good question. I think probably some agents feel like you work for them, but the truth is that obviously they work for you. You're paying them, and people can have funny relationships with agents. You know, leaving agents can be a trauma on both sides, and people can feel. A sort of weird sense of guilt or responsibility towards an agent oh, I can't leave this person you know or 
or they feel they they should do what their agent tell them even though they're working for them it can be quite interesting the dynamic between people we have a great agent and a great relationship with our agent but it's not always quite that simple Mm. yeah definitely and you're on social media and how have you found that the immediacy of feedback from people watching your shows has impacted maybe your writing process or, or the actual production process yeah, I'm on Twitter and I do tend to watch Twitter when shows go out. I, I love it, you know, because one of the big weird things about TV is that in the old days you just watch it go out and then that's it. You don't really know. It's not the opposite of a gig where you kind of see your audience reaction. You don't have any reaction. So I love Twitter from that. You can see people reacting to it in real time. It hasn't really affected the way I write, but you do... I get a warm sense of appreciation of Twitter. Anyone who follows me is bothered to find out who writes Peep Show. So that's obviously they're obviously self-selected as a be people who are sort of interested in tv they're not just following some random act they saw once i want to hurl abuse at so i get a very nice time on social media people don't really hurl abuse at me and they tend to be quite you know warm and friendly so i'm i'm a fan <laughs> would you would you say your relationship with social media is helpful as a writer in terms of um you, when you put something out you you find people kind of because like you said they've, they've invested in you as the writer rather than the star of the show so do you find if you wanted to put something out like a blog or, or something they're going to almost certainly or there's going to be a percentage of people that will almost certainly read it yeah i do like I've, I've written a couple of blog things and i tweet links to articles or interviews and stuff so that's nice and you can also self-promote and tell people when things are going to be on like i've got a play coming on in november at the park theater and people are already buying tickets because me and Kathy Burke, the director, have been tweeting about it. So that's nice. Yeah, it's really not much of a downside. The only downside is it's quite distracting if you're trying to work mm. Twitter and Facebook, but that's true of the internet in general. So, Yeah, yeah. particularly Facebook. Um, if, you, um, if, if you were to go back like to, to 20 years ago, were there any jobs that you took that you regretted taking? That's a great question. Not really regret, because every job I took was a job that wasn't working in a video shop or an office you know it was about being plugged into the industry and finding out we did some weird jobs like writing on the show techno games which was like a robot wars spin-off that wasn't for legal reasons allowed to be called the robot olympics we were on the big breakfast which i didn't enjoy at all but it was a good way to earn money and meet people and learn about the industry and we wrote on the jack doherty show the chat show which was really fun those you know we did some links for clip shows and the odd game show and stuff which i would never do now but i don't regret them because they do they all teach you stuff and you meet weird people and you go to interesting places and it's a lot better than an average job basically mm. well, if i were to reverse that question there were there any jobs that you didn't take that you now regret turning down um the only one is to fly the concords because we were like offered to go to la to help brett and jermaine and james bobin the director create that show but peep show I think the series four had just been commissioned. No, it got commissioned about yeah a week before we were going to go, so we couldn't go. But I think now I would probably say, well, we're going to take a few months off to write Flight of the Concords and then we'll do Peep Show. But mm. then we didn't have quite that sort of self confidence. Yeah. So if if we were to say today was the first day you and Jesse are meeting up to work on an idea that you've had for a show, how long into the process of trying to get it made would you go before you go? this isn't a good idea or no one likes this idea no one wants to buy this idea like what, what point do you go let's give up on that yeah sometimes you'd give up sort of just between yourselves 
but on the whole we didn't do that we usually waited to see what producers thought or felt and you know you have to be pretty dogged because no one really knows if anything's good it's all a matter of opinion but yeah if a show's getting persistently turned down and the thing about british tv it's not like america there's only a few places to shop it around three you know main channels or whatever so it doesn't take that long to figure out if it's no good but do you the, the the reverse of that in my head would be the channels are looking for something specific at different times. So, for example, if they've got, like you said, they've got The Office, you know, they might not be interested in another sitcom about an office. Yours might be amazing, but they've already got one. So how how do you, I mean, does an agent help with that or do you help each other sort of work out, this is why they're not buying it now, let's shelf it and come back to it? Or do you just, do you just go, actually, let's scrap it and let's find another idea? Yeah, producers should help with that. Producers should be able to tell you no one's buying shows that are like about this or that but on the whole i think people overstate that you know like when we did babylon which is like a comedy drama about the police they commissioned no offense like i think in the same year which is a comedy drama about, about the police i think that if if a show is good enough it will probably get through that 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 issue you know sometimes people use those as an excuse to turn something down because it's easier than saying it's not good enough and people are trying to be nice and they're english so they go, oh, you know, we'd love to do this, but we've got another show about two people living together, so we can't. What they really mean is it's not good enough, so it can be a bit of a diversion, I think. Do you, do you find your feedback gets more honest or less honest the more you know the person that you're getting the feedback from? Yeah, God, yeah, and that's, that's really why you want people around you who give you honest feedback, that you trust, that you, that you trust their opinion, that you trust their taste trust their judgment and so often you'll find like with ian morris so ian commissioned peep show he was at commissioning out at channel four he left after series two we appreciated his incredibly honest brutal feedback so much that we kept him on as script editor for every subsequent series same with rob robert popper i think you've had on the show right mm. so he was producer of series um three and four but he was so great that we've had him around even when he wasn't producing it because those people are so uh, valuable when you have someone whose opinion you say what do you think is this any good and they'll be honest with you yeah it's like gold dust mm. and when it comes to something like um, Netflix or, or, or on demand players for stuff you've already produced do you find that's had any impact on, on first of all because I think it was Andrew Ellard I was talking to about this where he was saying that the residual checks or the, or the, or the royalties has gone down because of the way the the end screens are like now not a thing and like that it's sort of moving on from from you being able to get those um what's it called syndication rights and stuff because it's sort of people are binge watching shows on things like netflix are you finding stuff like that's affecting you um i'm not a super expert we do get money when stuff goes on hulu or netflix it's not as much money as you get for bbc one repeat then we've never really done a BBC One show that gets repeated. You get some money for things on London Live and E4, which Peep Show's been on. It's not as much as if it was on the main channel, but then obviously it's more. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Or the nothing, which is what you would have got before when there was only three channels. So, swings and roundabouts, really. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Do you find it's hard to establish yourself as a name outside of the industry because writers tend to be sort of people focus on like David and Mitchell rather than Je- Jesse and Sam? Yeah, we've been very lucky actually. I think with Peep Show because because of the voiceovers, it feels more written than most sitcoms, even though it isn't it's the same as every sitcom is written obviously but because you can the words it's quite a dense show because of all the voiceovers i think people picked up on the writing of it relatively early on which is pretty unusual most of the time as you say correctly you know no one really knows who writes you know a show which isn't written by the stars it's quite un- quite rare to have a profile if you're not a performer obviously if you're a mandu inuchi then everyone knows you because you're you've got been on tv but i think we're pretty lucky in that respect do you, do you not want people knowing who you are? Well, look, I've got no great desire to be spotted in the street, but i also very happy if someone wants to tweet me that they think Peep Show's brilliant and that might make my afternoon, you know, so I feel like I've got the best of both worlds. Yeah, definitely. Going forward, how do you see TV moving? Do you think it's all going to go online? Do you think there's always going to be sort of a market for, for sort of regular terrestrial stuff? I, I know as much as you, really... Obviously, online is becoming big and big, and Netflix and Amazon and all the rest of it is is becoming increasingly dominant, which is probably a good thing. It certainly feels like there's another market that wasn't there before, which is probably good for people like me who write stuff. But obviously, like with my new show, BBC show Ill Behaviour, which is should be on, I think, around August. It was a BBC iPlayer commission. It would be on iPlayer for like two or three weeks first, a bit like Peter Cash car share was. But then it'll be on BBC Two. So I'm quite happy for that to work. Obviously, I'd be sad if it wasn't on BBC Two because then loads of people will hopefully see it who wouldn't then maybe go online and watch it on iPlayer. Mm. Do you get paid differently the more people see it? Well, that's a really great question. These are all great questions, by the way. I want to compliment you on your questioning. Thank you very much. I'll leave a name. <laughs> No, but I think you should. Like loads of people say, "Oh, why don't you, why don't you write a mainstream sitcom? We're desperate for mainstream sitcoms. Where's the only fools and horses?" My thing is, if you if you paid writers ten times as much for writing a show which got ten times the audience, you'd probably get those shows. But right now, because the script fees are basically the same, whether you write a late night Channel Four comedy or a a mainstream eight p eight eight p m comedy on ITV. Or, 
why would you bother getting all the critical hate that will probably come your way from your attempt at mainstream sitcom with no extra financial benefit when you can exist in your safe haven at 10pm on Channel 4 or E4 and have much more creative freedom and people will probably like it more and you'll get paid the same. Like, there's no motivation for writing those shows that everyone seems to want. That makes sense, because when I spoke to Chris Sussman um, at, at the BBC, he was saying, yeah, we're looking for, like, the next Miss Brown Boys, we're looking for that hit show that we can put in that time slot, but no one's writing them. And I was thinking, but surely everyone's writing them, because that would be the logical, you know, what you'd want. But if you're not, like you said, if there's no financial benefit and there's actually a lot of downsides with social media with you maybe getting a lot of abuse because people you know all of a sudden you know you're being thrust into a limelight that maybe you don't want to be i could imagine yeah so is it like a purposeful move with you and jesse to sit down and go let's think about okay so it's post watershed so we can do different things it's on channel four or or is it or is that not even really in your head but you kind of know it's there well, you, you just want to be able to write whatever you feel like, basically. And, and you know that if you write a 7.30pm show, it's not going to be as free as writing. And, you know, we tend to write, I guess, relatively edgy stuff or stuff where it's not going to be pre-watersheds. But, yeah, I mean, if Chris Sussman paid someone five times as much to write the show gets five times the viewers, that might solve the problem. But the, but the, the thing with that is, is, like, the BBC don't have adverts so I assume they've just got sort of because I, I know in house with their staff they have like layers of um, pay so I imagine with channel 4 they might pay more because the adverts are going to get more money rather than BBC yeah can I pass I don't, that's okay, that's I don't okay. know the answer to that question that's okay I don't know how they work it out okay my my you know idiot from the back row view is if you if you want show more viewers pay more money yeah definitely and when it comes to your partnership of writing, do you just say, right, well, um, we, we just split the fee? Or is it a case of if one of you's written more or one of you's written less, you kind of have to sort of negotiate stuff like that? No, that would be a nightmare, I think. <laughs> we've always split the fee, and luckily we've always done exactly the same amount of work, so it's always worked out. I can see it being a big issue in some partnerships if you feel like you're doing more. That could be a deal-breaker quite easily. It could dissolve quite quickly. Because Yeshi and I both have the same work ethic and we're scrupulously fair and sort of even-handed with each other. It's never been an issue, yeah. Do you, do you find that like one of you writes plot better than the other one and you have to kind of... No, we've, we're very... You know, we've obviously doing a lot more stuff solo now. We are, you know, I think we write decent stuff solo as well. So we sort of have the same skill set, which makes us a good blend because there's no one who's sort of like carrying more of the burden of the story or the script reading. Mm. Do you prefer writing on your own or with a... Well, it's very different. I think the highs are higher and the lows are lower on your own. If something's going really badly, there's no one to blame but yourself. And you feel kind of shitty. If it's going really well, there's no one to thank but yourself and you feel kind of amazing. Whereas in a partnership, the stuff you write is probably less personal. It's not going to be less from the heart to a degree like we don't really write drama together because you need a bit more emotional investment in drama I think to write good drama but the, the benefits is obvious which is it's really fun it's really social you have a lot of laughter in your day I don't laugh so much so I'm sitting on my own as I do with Jesse but maybe you don't feel quite the sense of ownership and satisfaction that you do when you see something that you've done completely on your own so let's say if we took you back to 20 years ago when you started how did you know what was going to be funny on paper and in real life and also and then in the edit well, that's again where a partner comes in. Okay. Because if you say something to someone and they laugh, then you've got a much better idea that it's funny than if you just say it to yourself and look at it on the paper and go, is that funny? 
So it's hugely important. He's like your, your writing partner's like your first audience member, and that's amazing. In terms of what's funny on on the day on the shoot, yeah, you don't know, and you obviously experience is really helpful because you find out what's funny by experience. And in the edit, again, it's edit's easy because it's trial and error. You can change things around. With the shoot, it's a bit more stressful because you've got one chance to get the scene right, and you won't be able to reshoot it probably. Or sometimes you can, but yeah, it's just experience and learning from doing really yeah and what what advice would you give someone who is writing on their own to kind of understand something that yeah that's really funny written down but not going to be funny in real life um well sometimes jokes can seem written that can be a good indicator of when it won't if it feels like it's coming from the writer rather than the character if so if the writer come up with a brilliant line they think it's a sparkling joke and doesn't really fit in the character's mouth that will get cut it won't work also you can't really stop thinking about visual stuff visual jokes just count for so much more than dialogue jokes tv and if you keep thinking visually it really does help because often as writers one has a tendency to think verbally obviously because you're a writer but you know the bits that people mention when they did like a top 10 scenes in peep show list in some magazine most of them were like visual gags or stunts or stuff which i think is says it all really so when when you're writing do you write the directoral notes as well or do you just write the dialogue well you you certainly want to write action uh lines that explain what you're seeing i think there's a point like the first so in the first uh series of peep show we did that we had this quite complicated system of writing where we had two columns and we wrote what was being seen and what was being heard, especially with voiceovers on, on opposite sides of the page, because we felt like we really had to match the voiceovers with the images all the time. It was very particular. And when we saw what the editor did, the brilliant editor, Lucian Clayton, who saved the show really in the edit, when we saw what he did, which was basically just do whatever he wanted and make it better, we stopped doing that immediately because it was like, well, you know, the script only goes so far. You can only imagine up to a point what's what's going to be work visually in the edit actually is the final draft of the script that's where it gets written for the last time that's when you can really see and in peep show we do a lot of writing in the edit because obviously with voiceovers you can write and record them endlessly so it becomes almost like an animated show where you can sort of fit the words precisely to what you're seeing which i think really helps because then the show feels really tight and sort of shrink wrapped and it's all very you know particular to the, every moment's been you know tweaked or polished you don't just have to put up with what you've shot you can actually change it in the edit quite easily yeah yeah i can see i can see why that's i know what you're saying about visually because i think i think uh my my sort of uh, i don't know how to say this without it's coming off weird so bear with me but i find um the the medium is the thing you've got to write for as well as the channel so the most interesting part for me is when people take something from like a TV show, so like being on a TV, to putting it online and how people watching it, they're watching it differently. So like they're nearer the screen, they're like maybe they've maybe got a tab open and doing something else. So they're not quite watching it, but they are watching it. And and is that something that like you think about when you're kind of like to keep their attention? Because even though you're going to get the hit of the watch, do you ever like sort of think we've got to actually really make this so they're not sort of tweeting at the same time or they're not you know trying to look up what that actor's done as well put your phones down guys watch the show <laughs> come on you know relax it's a good chance just to enjoy a tv show just 
just just chill what's the lord say to people just watch it it's what? okay did you, did you i don't know if you saw this but there was a really good article on the drum about um psychoville and how no one tweets during it but there's like a spike the minute it finishes because everyone's just sort of like consumed by it that's not true there people tweet during that show well, no no but like on the num- on the numbers of how many people normally tweet like during tv shows it's so much lower than like right. a regular show because it's such one of those because reese has told them off if they do it probably yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't care tweet. you can tweet as long as it's praise don't tweet abuse during or after the show but you can tweet praise whenever you want my my day job i write jokes for twitter and oh, okay. yeah, uh, like for different brands and for channels and things. And when I, I can't say what channel I was working for, but it was a, it was a um, Sky Channel essentially. And at one point, we, we, I got into a really big argument with them because they wanted the, the hashtag to trend during the show. And I said, but then they won't be watching the show. And they were like, yeah, but then we know they're watching it. And I was like, but no, but they're definitely not because you're trying to make that happen. And I, and I wondered whether you'd ever had discussions like that with channels where you're like, can you tweet hashtag watch peep show now or hashtag fresh meat to try and get people talking to you during it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, we've done Twitter Q&As and stuff before the show, but obviously not during. Yeah, I mean, on the whole, people tweet during the interval. I mean, the trailers, not the trailers, the adverts. What am I talking about? Or before or after the show. But yeah, I guess, um, yeah, it'd be nice if people just watched it, but... You know, frankly, I'm not their dad. They can do what they want. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I was going to ask really quickly, before I go to the last few questions, what, was, what are the things you're working on? Do you want to talk about something going forward? Oh, yeah, so Ill Behaviour, which is coming out, I think, in August, not quite sure, BBC Two. Th- this episode will be coming out in August, so... Yeah, it's a series. Okay. It's a three... Um, so Ill Behaviour is a three-hour comedy drama, which we've done with Ian Morris and Damon Beasley at Fudge Park... Who, don't make the, who made the Inbetweeners, and it'd be on BBC iPlayer, BBC Two, and it's got some cool people in it, like Chris Gere and Lizzie Kaplan, Tom Riley, Jessica Regan. And then I've got my first play coming on at the Park Theatre in Finsbury Park in November, with Cathy Burke directing, so tickets are on sale for that. It'll be on for a month. How, how are you finding uh, writing for a, like a live medium play versus TV? Come back to me in November. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. Okay. I've got the script. We haven't got actors or rehearsed yet, but Kathy's amazing, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay. How did how did um, the three part thing come along? Was it was it designed that way? Or was it? Well, no. Originally, it was a feature. It's like a 90 minute feature. Okay. But I couldn't couldn't get it away. We couldn't get it made. So Ian and Damon, who I like and trust a lot, and they're brilliant. They sort of convinced me to do it as a three part miniseries instead. And then Shane Allen, who's head of comedy at BBC, he was into it. So I think it worked out for the best in the end. How how was that? Because obviously all those names are really big in terms of writing and in terms of like sort of their status within the industry. So was that quite easy to get? Because because it sounds like it wasn't easy to get through as a as a chunk, but it was easy to get through when you sort of ad- adapted it. Yeah, I mean the, our names. You know, Shane obviously was around with the Inbetweeners movie, and he commissioned three series of Peep Show. So he's like you know on our team. So obviously it massively helps if he gets a script with my name on it Ian and Damon's name on it he's going to read it quickly which he did and luckily he's well disposed to it so yeah it's incredibly helpful whereas film is a little bit more our names well my name certainly doesn't mean as much Ian and Damon's do because of the in between his movies but it's just a little bit harder to right. get to get those people to really kind of say yes basically would it have cost them any more or less to make it as a 90 minute thing rather than three 30 minute things well I'm guessing it costs more to make it as 3.30 because it's 
So it's three sixty minute. Oh, sorry, yeah. because it's three hours long. It's twice as long, but I would imagine so. But you know, TV has there's more money sloshing around. People have budgets they need to spend. Film everything's a bit of a kind of one off. That's interesting because I'd, I'd imagine it'd be the other way around. Because when you hear this film has you know X million as a budget, and then you hear you know a sitcom costs you know two to five hundred, you know whatever, like mm. for for a, for a half hour thing, you you sort of if you extrapolate that to a ninety minute thing, it doesn't come to. Yeah, but this this was a drama, really, because it's an hour-long format, so it's more of a drama with jokes, and it's got stunts, and it's got action sequences, it's got a bit more scale than a sitcom. Okay. So I think the budget was decent. Was there any, like, changes you had to make based on budget that you couldn't make happen? No, but Ian was brilliant, because we did have a, I won't give anything away, we did have a big stunt in the last episode, which... There was some pressure on, but Ian was like, no, no, we need to do it the way it's scripted. It'd be much funnier. And he was right. And that was great. That's called great producing, really. When someone knows what's important and fights for it. Because it's hard for me to go, no, you need to pay for this. You know, it's much easier for him as as the producer to go, no, we need to divert money from this to this because it's more important. That I really appreciated that. That's Was that the first time you'd worked together on a project? Or was that... Well, no, he's been involved in every series of Peep Show. Okay. But it was the first time I worked with him as a kind of producer. This is his company that made it. Okay. And I assume working together on Peep Show, there was an element of trust that had sort of been built up. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I took the project to him first. And it, I think it's worked out very well because we just have a very honest relationship. And I've got a lot of respect for him creatively. And, you know, there's a real familiarity there. You can be honest with each other. You can trust each other, which is so important, especially on a first series, because obviously it's a first series. It's a one-off. There's so many uh, things to get right that you can't, you don't have a second chance over. Someone who's got your back, who you can, you only go, is this going to work? Is this any good? They can tell you, you can trust them. It's just so valuable. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it sounds, the more I talk to, to people who've been going quite a long time, the more I realise they're sort of, uh, there's a really good statistic I like that's you're the average of the five people you hang out with most. And I, and I like the fact that sort of people kind of, without even thinking about it are gravitating towards that where they're going you know what I know this person I like this person it doesn't matter that there might be someone better out there for the job I trust that person so it doesn't even matter that there is a better person it's just the trust element's more to me than it's a shorthand as well you know with a first series or a one-off you meet someone for an hour producer director whatever and you go okay they seem great you don't know if they're a psycho or not until week two when you're in the trenches and you go, oh my God, this person's totally mad. Because mm. what can you tell after an hour meeting someone? Mm. Everyone's got their best face on. Whereas if you know someone well, then you know that, okay, well, we'll be all right. Or I know what their strengths and weaknesses are and I can accommodate for that. But if you're just dealing with a whole load of brand new people, it's a huge risk. Are there any parts in a production of a show that you that you actively have to find or you actually had to find someone to fill in that you couldn't do so like would you say that producing is something that you had to get someone else to do because it's you're too close to the script and so you needed someone to well more directing i haven't directed yet and directors i think i like working with directors when they give you as you say a different view or they think about different stuff so i i work with directors quite well on set i think i think they'd probably say that you'd have to ask them but with usually think about different things they're often thinking about how the scene looks visually or you know particular shots and i'm thinking really about the performances completely or the the words or the story and so that i like because they i've never really worked the director didn't feel improved what i'd written and made it something that i wouldn't have 
seen if I was directing it. I am a producer, really. I'm an exec producer on this show and everything I've done for the last decade or so. So that's more of a collaboration with people who are doing a similar job to me, which is overseeing the whole thing. But obviously, you know, you want people who can give you different points of view that you couldn't have on your own. And how, how did you originally go about finding those people was it your agent who put you in touch with them or did you just look at credits of other shows you liked or you just meet people over the years you know so going back to the first ever option i mentioned in 1997 that was gareth edwards who i'm still working with today he's producing a radio series that we're recording in september i just you know he's a great guy i've known him for 20 years and trust him and ian i've known for 15 years and you just meet people and then if you like them you hopefully hang on to them yeah makes sense i think i think that's the hard part for, I think a lot of people when they start out want to work with their like their idols or the people they've been watching rather than the people they're moving up with. And I think, I mean, did you ever sort of try and aim for, you know, sort of, like, who, who's one of your influences as a writer? Well, Chris Morris, that was a great experience working with him, but he kind of picked us. We didn't sort of try and beat down his door to, I think he'd seen Peep Show and felt like, the first time we met him, he was talking about us helping him write Nathan Barley series two, which never happened, obviously, and then subsequently he brought us Four Lions, so that was great. But yeah, he kind of he picked us rather than the other way around. How was how was that for you? Did you like was it like really humbling and like exciting? What what, what were you? Yeah, because Chris is that figure. He's a bit of a legend and he's a bit of a genius, and he's quite mysterious. Although not when you get to know him, he's just a very likable, enthusiastic, smart guy. Yeah, it was exciting because obviously you're working with someone who is a legend in British comedy. How did that, did he just email you or your agent? What was, what yeah, was that like? I can't remember the exact method of communication, whether it was by mobile phone or email <laughs> or fax. But um, yeah, once we'd been in contact, I think he just obviously felt like maybe we could help him with Four Lions because he was really looking, looking for someone t- to help him crack, I think, the structure of a film, which he hadn't done before. And it worked, I think. Had you had you done a film by that point? We'd done Magicians, yeah, which wasn't a huge success. But I think he knew that we probably had enough writing experience to be able to lend a hand. Was it worrying at any point in that? Where because obviously you've got a comedy legend coming to you for help, yeah. and then and you've obviously done a film that you've just said wasn't. I mean, it was a great film, but you, you said it wasn't as maybe successful as you wanted it to be. Was there ever like a worry where you could go? Actually, can we do? We, or, or were you like, we'll learn on the job, we'll be fine. He's, he's obviously got enough faith in us. Yeah, I wasn't nervous about doing it because I felt like there wasn't really a roadmap for that film. What's great about that process and what's so unique about Chris is that he doesn't really have a sort of plan in the way that some people do. He didn't know if the film was going to work. No one did. It, it began as a series of conversations where the question was, could you do a comedy about Islamic terrorism? And if so, what would it be like? And he, he, what was great about Chris, he didn't go in with an answer like, like a lot of people might go, right, I'm going to do a film about, about Islamic terrorism. It's going to be funny. He didn't, he didn't know the answer. He wanted to find out. The script, in a way, was our answer to that question. Like, if it hadn't have worked out, he wouldn't have done it. You know, he wasn't like, he's just got a very questioning nature, and he asks interesting questions, and sums up, comes up, sometimes comes up with brilliant answers, but sometimes he doesn't. I've worked on other scripts with him, which. He just decided that there wasn't an answer and we stopped working on it, you mm. know, which could have been four lines. Mm. That's really cool. That, that makes you think a little bit like what scripts did you give up on or what scripts did you start working on that could have been something else? Do you ever play the what if game in your head? No, I think that the script we were working on that he, he just decided it wasn't going to work. I don't think about that very much. I think he was probably right. And also with Chris, 
it's really about his passion. He's going to drive the project. He's going to direct it. So if he's not feeling it, then it's not really worth worrying about. Do you ever deal with like, or I assume it probably helps having a partner there, but do you ever like deal with anxiety about sort of whether you're going to get another project, whether you're going to like still have a career? And like you, you joked where you said, oh, talk to me in November at the end of this, you know, mm. like how do you deal with your anxiety of, because I assume it's all freelance and there's no like real job security real, realistically. No, there isn't. Um, yeah, I've had my moments. Like me and Jess have been writing solo stuff for a while now, I guess about eight, nine years and for most of those years I had about two or three maybe more like scripts which I'd written which just weren't going anywhere one of them being ill behaviour so when that got commissioned last year that was a big relief because there's always that fear that it wouldn't happen that I wouldn't be able to have a solo career and Jesse got his pilot commissioned about the same week which was really nice actually his HBO show so that was a relief because yeah there was a bit of anxiety about is this ever going to work can I cut out on my own was it quite organic the split there not the split but like the you wanting to do something on your own or him doing something on his own yeah it was pretty much it sort of started with the thick of it because um, I think I actually wrote the first draft the first episode of the thick of it and then he came in and did his draft which completely rewrote mine to the point where there was barely anything left and he made it a lot better and he'd worked in Westminster and knew the subject intimately and he just had a perfect feel for it. And it was it was an interesting one because I'd never had that before. We'd always done, felt like equal work on every script. But with that one, I just had a real sense that I couldn't really offer much and that actually his voice was so strong and his take on it was so confident that I'd be playing catch-up for the whole show and it didn't feel right. When you're a partnership, you need to be equal. Mm. So I just said, look, you should do this on your own. And he went and finished the script. I think that kicked him off to wanting to do more on his own, which was fine by me because then I got some time to do stuff on my own as well. And I think it really helped because when you've been writing for 20 years together, which we have, it's nice to have a bit of a, a change. And we are writing a script together right now, a film script, but we're also writing more stuff separately. And it's nice to have a variety, really. When you say write on your own, do you literally just mean sat at a computer on your own or do you have like an office or do you go into the channel? I have an office at home, study. I often work in my agent's office and meeting rooms and stuff, but usually I'm working at home. Okay. So it, so it is literally quite a solitary kind of yeah. activity? Yeah, but with everything I'm writing, there's some producer at the end of a phone or an email I can send drafts to or some director I'm working with. That's how I like to do it because if I'm too alone, I probably wouldn't feel motivated or encouraged to get it right and get it written you know are you are you someone that will so say you had a month to write something you would write for the month or would you like wait until two days before <laughs> and then a month i'll probably be writing six things right. during that month you know i've usually got a bunch of things on the go and i'm just spinning plates really okay these are the final quick fire questions i ask everyone um so quick fire for me you take as long as you like to answer them um what are the best books on uh, writing that you've ever read William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade and What Lie Did I Tell. Okay. What's What Lie? I've not heard that one before. It is the sequel. Oh, it's the sequel. Okay, cool. I'm going to have to look that one up. I keep this one vague on purpose, by the way. Um, what is the best show you've ever seen? Well, I'm going to say Seinfeld just because it was the thing which broke open sitcom to me and Jesse. It was on when we started writing together in 97 and it was like, oh my God, sitcom can be something quite amazing and as a writing as a, as writers looking at the way that show is written was sort of revolutionary 
probably influenced influenced us more than anything else. Um, so I'll say that. Okay. A lot of people in the entertainment industry would describe themselves as one way, but their income would describe them another way. How would you... So, for example, some comedians call themselves comedians, but they make more money from, like, TV warm-up or from writing or whatever. Okay. How would you describe yourself if, like, you were writing a CV versus how would your income describe you? I'm a writer and executive producer. I think that would be the same on both. On both. Okay. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? Wow. <laughs> the biggest mistake I ever made... In my career rather than my life. Can be, I keep it vague. <laughs> Some people pick their life because that sometimes has an impact on. I have to say I've not really made that many mistakes in my career. It sounds arrogant, maybe. <laughs> but I don't really feel I have. Like I said about, I kind of regret not doing Flight of the Concords, but that's, I haven't lost any sleep over that. Yeah, I'm going to say that I haven't really made any. Okay. There you go. <laughs> what is the biggest misconception that people have about what you do? Well, the cliche is how the actors say all the words themselves I think that probably isn't so true of people these days biggest mix, I think probably the biggest misconception some people have who aren't in the industry is that it's quite easy that what I do all day is sit around just having a laugh and that's quite a fun job which it basically isn't right what, why isn't it a fun job well it is a fun job but it's a lot of work yeah it's just really hard work most of the time I find the hardest thing to explain to people is I don't have hours as such so often I don't ever feel like I'm off if that makes sense. I tend to try and have quite careful hours, like I work a sort of nine to six day. Right. Because if I didn't, I think I'd probably go a bit balmy. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, who do you think is the most underrated person in the industry? Well, you know what? I'm going to sound like a, a bootlicker. But I think I'm going to say executives, channel executives, they get all this crap about how they, they kind of... Um, you know, dumb everything down and all that. And I've had, I just have had great experiences with the ones I've worked with. The ones who've commissioned my shows, given me notes, encouraged it, helped it along. You know, people like Shane Allen, Roberto Trani, Piers Wenger, Ian, obviously, Phil Clark. They're just, they're just really good at what they do and they, they get pretty much zero credit for it there you go i'm gonna lick some boots that's okay i've got shane coming on soon so i'll pass this on to him. um when you look back over your career what memory makes you the most happy um memory well yeah it's fun winning the bafta and stuff i think memories is just having fun with jesse in our office just lots of hours and days and years of laughter really feeling like you're free to just have amazing time at work with your with your mate every day. Okay. Um, what do you think is the biggest problem in the television industry and how would you go about solving it? Biggest problem is probably not good enough scripts and the biggest solution would just be to hire me to write all of them. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and if you were to go back to yourself 20 years ago and you had... Or, or, Actually, I'm going to rephrase this one for you. Um, if you were to have to start again now, like as in you've never written anything commercially, you've had a, you've had day jobs up till this point, literally you, yourself 20 years ago, but now, what would you do differently to get into the industry? I think we did the right thing, write a script, get an agent. Yeah. 
you wouldn't you wouldn't maybe pursue a social media channel to try and oh right sorry if it was now as writers no as performers sure directors yeah but as writers it's all on the page so not really okay I'm gonna I'm gonna add back in this question then uh, just because I think it'd be a good ending question um, if you could go back to your if you go back to 20 years ago what advice would you give yourself before you'd even written your first short story oh I would say yeah you know good on you have a good time enjoy it's gonna be fine might take a while just you know smell the flowers don't worry about anything it'll be alright eventually just keep going that was Sam Sometimes editing is a pain and it drags on and I don't enjoy it that much. But this episode was a pleasure. I'm really proud of this episode and I hope you got some value out of it as well. My favourite bit was when he pointed out that he thinks you should get paid more if you write the show that gets seen by more people and why that doesn't happen and why that means he doesn't aim for mainstream BBC hit shows. I loved his healthy relationship with the industry and his desire not to be famous but how social media has helped him gain an audience that has still managed to keep him below the fame line so he doesn't get stopped in the street. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send Sam a thank you on Twitter. It's always appreciated by the guest and it's a lovely thing to do. As I mentioned, Sam's play, which is called The Retreat, is on at the Park Theatre in London throughout November and part of December. Also, you can see his TV show Ill Behaviour on the BBC. All details and ticket links are in the show notes for this episode or on his website or on his Twitter. Have a little browse, I'm sure you can find it. Please do support him in any way you can. If you'd like to support me, I am at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. There's still over a week left to go and I've still got some tickets to sell. So if you can come, that'd be amazing. It's called Laughter is the Best Placebo. It's on at 5pm at Sweets Venue in Grassmarket 2 every day except Wednesdays when I get rudely awoken by the dustman. That's still, it's getting old for me, but I'm enjoying it. If you can't come down to the show, I'm on tour in September. So please do feel free to check out my website. Uh, There's a link in the podcast show notes for that. And you can come see my new show when it comes to a town nearer you. That'd be really good and really helpful. Thank you. If you are new here, please do hit subscribe. If you're old here, please do leave it an honest review in iTunes. And either way, if you'd like to financially support the podcast, you can give a one-off donation via PayPal, or you can give a regular donation by becoming a patron on Patreon from $1. Do you think what you just listened to is worth 80p, 80 English pence? That's really not that much to have just over an hour's worth of entertainment and knowledge about the industry. If you can afford that twice a month, please do consider becoming a patron. It really helps support and maintain the thing you value if you do. So please consider doing it because honestly, I really would like to get some more patrons to help this show as it starts to creep into year three, which is exciting and scary. You can find all the links for these in the show notes. Uh, But if you can't afford it, please don't donate. I don't want anyone else going into debt for this show than me. But for now, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for sharing. And thank you very much for donating and coming to see my show if you do. I'll see you all in about 15 days' time. Bye! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.